Hello, beloved survivors. This is Autumn. A few weeks before the historic landing of the Perseverance rover on Mars, I got a message from an old friend and electoral organizer, Annie Weinberg. It turns out that Annie knows an extraordinary person named C.J. Givingo, a union organizer turned rocket scientist, one of the leads on the Mars rover mission at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Annie had this wild idea that it would be cool to host a conversation between me and C.J. to talk about what space exploration and movement organizing have to learn from one another. The audio you are about to hear comes from that magical night, an event hosted by the Movement School and moderated by movement journalist and badass nerd, Anoa Changa. In the week leading up to the event, we all learned that the landing site on Mars was named in honor of Octavia E. Butler, which added an entirely new dimension to our conversation about exploration, colonization, ideological rigor, relationship, and imagination. I hope you enjoy listening to this event as much as we enjoyed creating it. A video recording of Organizers in Space is also available on YouTube if you want to see our blissed out science fiction nerd faces in full blossom. Hello, hello, and welcome to Organizers in Space, a virtual conversation about what space exploration and movement organizing can learn from each other right now in honor of the Perseverance Mars rover landing. This conversation was recorded on March 11th, sponsored by Movement School and co-sponsored by the Forge Journal for Organizing Strategy and Practice. And we have here CJ Giovingo, former union and environmental organizer, now a systems engineer for the Jet Propulsion Lab, where they served as the entry, descent, and landing activity lead for the history-making Perseverance mission, which means that just a couple weeks ago, they and their team at NASA landed an actual rocket ship on actual Mars in a site on the Jezero crater, where the rover is going to search for ancient life, collect samples, and prepare for eventual human arrival. The landing site where Perseverance touched down has been named for visionary writer Octavia Butler, the creator of prophetic works like the Earthseed series. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. And CJ is joined today by Autumn Brown, movement facilitator, organizer, strategist, writer of creative nonfiction and speculative fiction, theologian, worker owner of the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance, also known as the Aorta Co-op, co-host of the How to Survive the End of the World podcast. And Autumn has really spent the past 15 years in powerful movement building work for social justice, supporting organizations in strategic planning, political education, and visioning processes. Your moderator for today is Anoa Changa, a brilliant movement journalist, election strategist, writer, uh, and host of the Way with Anoa podcast, uh, co-hosted by me, Annie Weinberg, election strategist and coach focused on supporting candidates, campaign staff, and movement groups working to build a more just and reflective democracy through transformative campaigns. Building a more reflective democracy 
and going on a quest to another planet are both epic, deeply collective human endeavors. We're going to talk in this conversation about the synchronicities, the lessons between these two crafts. And if you want to stay in touch with us or you have an idea about this theme, uh, we'll say all of our internet handles and social media at the end, but you can email us at organizersinspace at gmail.com. Again, it's organizersinspace at gmail.com or follow us on all the handles we'll say at the end. We have so much to talk about, so uh, we're going to dive right into it, into the conversation. Let's jump in. So like the universe, what's that about? Let's just talk about every detail right now. Okay, let's do it. Um, yeah, so my interest in space exploration, you know, is was really just about the sky itself. Um, I grew up in Southern Louisiana. And when I was a kid, we used to throw rocks at the streetlights. So they would like temporarily go out. So it would be dark enough. Then we'd run and lay in the street and we would like see as many stars as we could see. And I was just really obsessed with the massiveness of what was out there and how far away it was. And when I first went to college, um, I thought that the only way you could do anything was, uh, the only thing I, the, the only way I understood success was like, you had to go to college, you had to study this very serious thing. And so I started in, um, in astrophysics. Um, I'm not really a great researcher because it's a very solo event and I, and and that's turns out wasn't really me, but I didn't understand that at the time. Um, and I ended up leaving school for a whole lot of reasons um, without getting a degree. And I went into organizing and I loved it. I loved it. I loved all this people work. I loved the negotiating, um, but I missed a part of my brain and I went on a whole nother track and had a whole different degree or, or a career. And I ended up going back to school. And it wasn't until I was, I knew that when I went back to school, I wanted to go back to get back into space. It was what my passion was, but I'd had this whole organizing experience that taught me a lot about myself as well. It taught me about teamwork, uh, taught me about how I like to work with people, the type of problems I like to solve. But I knew that I had to get back to space because it was my passion. And I sat in my first kind of, there is no system engineer class, but it was a class geared towards systems engineering. And it talked about it, it was basically organizing for space. I mean, that, that was, I came home and told my wife, Caroline, I was like, I know exactly what I want to do. Like, this is exactly what I do because the whole idea behind systems engineering is you look at the big picture, right? Everybody's got a part, everybody's got a function, but you're all interconnected. You all need each other to put the whole thing together to make it run. And so the negotiations you have to make, some are very technical. I need power, you need power. There's only so much power to go around, but it's also personal, right? It, you have to get to know each other. You have to know where people's pressure points are. You have to know how to work together, doing hard things, agreeing and disagreeing over the course of many, many, many years. And so I loved that mix of the technical negotiation with the people negotiation. Um, I was really fortunate uh, to have a mentor look at my resume. This is the way that I got into JPL. Um, I had like kind of one of those crazy resumes that happens for people who, who don't take a direct path to things, right? <laughs> On the front side of my resume was like, here, I went back to school and look, space, space, space. I did all the right things. And you turn on the other side and it was like, I was a political organizer for all these years. I also went back to trade school. And when she turned, and I think she's here. Hi, Tracy. Um, when she turned over my resume and read the system, you know, the organizing piece, hi, Tracy, Tracy Van Houten, she's amazing. Um, she got it. 
she understood. I didn't have to explain it to her. She she had the vision to understand and give me that shot into JPL. And I ended up getting to work for her. And I think that also speaks to what I learned from organizing is you turn around and you and you pull people up with you. So anyway, that's a I fit a lot into that answer, but that's kind of that that is that that was how I got to this and how I got to that understanding. And it's been as cool as I I'd hope it would be by combining those two traits. Awesome. Thank you, CJ. Autumn. Ready to hear from you now. Oh my God. Wow. Um, I just, I have to say, because I have to say it, that I, I, at least once a week in my job, I will say the phrase, I mean, it's not rocket science. And here I am talking to a rocket scientist. I'm so excited. Okay. <laughs> I just had to say that out loud because that's just a real part of my life. Um, okay. So the question, the question is about um, the concept of, of repetition and redundancy. And I think one of the things that I notice in, in social movements right now is that um, we, we are so accustomed to being under-resourced um, and to doing our work in under-resourced or under-invested ways and contexts um, that I think we often don't have the experience of uh, positive redundancy or positive or a positive relationship to repetition because of that scare, the scarcity that kind of influences everything that we do. Um, and I think one of the things that I've been learning a lot in, in my years of doing movement facilitation is that redundancy is actually so critical to our ability to do our work well. Um, and I think that redundancy makes way for rigor, right? So, um, you know, so when when we when we don't have redundancy or when we're not experiencing repetition in a positive way or repetition as something that's a necessary part of our work, I think that it 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 can create a little bit of um, it can create like a fragility around having our work critiqued or having things not work well, right? Um, and we see this, I think we're seeing this really across our social movements right now that folks have this, there's a real intense um, kind of fragility around the idea of, of constructive criticism or, or um, you know, you might not have gotten it right. You maybe need to try again to get it right. Maybe you got it wrong and you actually need to keep going. <laughs> and what I'm hearing and what you're describing CJ about the, the sort of ethos of JPL is this understanding that repetition, redundancy and critique is all a part of the practice of having rigor around the work that you all are doing and the rigor is necessary in order to actually get it right right like you can't undertake a mission like what just happened with the perseverance yeah. without a really clear sense that like this has to go right there's a <laughs> there's a yeah. there's a specific time a specific way a specific place and a specific landing right that it, you have to get it right which means that the backwards planning from that has to be so rigorous 
Yeah. And, and so for me, where all of that relates to this idea of, um, you know, what, what you were just asking and Noah about, about radical imagination and, and possibility is that I think there's, I think there's an extent to which we kind of, we have to do a little, um, we have to ad adjust our perspectives in social movements right now and understand that, um, that it doesn't constrain our imaginations to have repetition, redundancy, and critique. That actually those having some boundaries <laughs> and having some requirements of one another are, that's part of what ultimately unleashes the thing that could be great or could be mighty or could be amazing, right? Um, that it's, it's, it does actually doesn't serve anyone for our social movements to kind of feel like a no man's land where like it's a free for all. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm really taking to heart this, this idea that, you know, you're hired because of your voice, you have to be prepared to use it. And you also have to be ready for what happens if you do that. It's like, yes, step into your agency, step into your power mm -hmm. and move into this space and also know that you'll be met, right? You'll be met with equal agency and equal power by the others in the space. And I think ideally that's what organizing should feel like, right? That we're stepping into our agency, we're stepping into our power and we want to be fully met in that. And it's not a bad thing if we disagree. It's not a bad thing <laughs> if yeah. we are having conflict. Like those are actually all fruitful things that help us realize, realize some, uh, um, all the more radical possibilities that we're fighting for, that that friction is necessary. Yeah, we talk a lot about being comfortable with uncertainty. You've got to get uncomfortable. You've got to get comfortable with being uncertain. And and I loved that you picked up on that critique piece because it is um, it is absolutely a huge part of how we do our work. And it can be a little bit of a culture shock when we first get there because it can feel a little bit like a battle zone. But mm -hmm. um, a senior engineer once described it to a group of us as like, you've got to think of your idea as this kind of, this, this thing outside of you. And like, you've got to check your ego. Like you've got to, let's be honest, you've got to have enough ego to have that idea. That's right, that's right. <laughs> right? You do, <laughs> but you've also got to let it go enough that you can set it in the middle of the room and trust the people in there with it. So you can all walk around it and look at it so it can become a bigger thing because it's not gonna become a bigger thing if you just hold it here, right? You have to, you have to put it in the room so that everyone else, all of those other voices can, can bring to it too. And, and the other thing that I love that you, you talked about was the, the pressure to get it right. The thing that you don't see that we do in, in engineering is we spent years pushing every single part of our system to find out what was wrong. We failed and failed and failed and failed gloriously. I, I'd spent 15 hours testing and the whole thing would crash and that was my day and I'd have to do it again and figure out, right? Like, because we wanted to fail in that constrained environment 
so that we succeeded. We got it right when we had no room to get it wrong in the right place. So that's another thing that I think is we can't be afraid to test new things and be prepared to fail in the right spaces, mm-hmm. um, knowing that that will build our knowledge when it really, really counts, right? Right, right. And I think that one of the things that that is happening in, in I think one of the dynamics that we're up against in social movements, right, is that, I mean, look at this last year of our lives, right? I mean, we've been, everyone has been living and working under such outrageously terrible conditions. So the pressure, like the, the, the pressure of living just under constant psychological, physical, emotional, social, spiritual violence is so real and so intense and so pervasive. And I think that that can create a dynamic where there's, it feels like there's no safe place to fail, right? Everything, every relationship, every space, every organization, every coalition, you know, every network feels like a place where the stakes are so high and there's no safe place for us to make mistakes and fail. And what I'm taking from what you're describing is that we actually have to create laboratories (laughs) <laughs> right? Like we have to, we need a, we need JPLs for the movement. Like we need, <laughs> we need those spaces yeah. where we understand that part of the job of this coalition in this particular state working on this issue, part of our job is to try multiple strategies, several of which we understand will likely fail. Mm-hmm. And that the, <laughs> the failures are ultimately going to guide us to our win, but we're not, we're, we're failing forward. We're failing on purpose in order to find our way to the actual success. But it's like, we don't, I don't, I don't know that in, um, I think that there are spaces in our movements where we are seeing that turn happen, where folks are starting to like think through that kind of lens. It's just not, it's not yet kind of, um, it's, the, that perspective is not taking up as much room as I would like it to see, you know, mm-hmm. from my vantage point as a movement facilitator, working with a lot of groups, working with a lot of coalitions and networks and touching a lot of those spaces. I, I know that one of the, I'm often, I find myself often saying, um, <laughs> you do know it's okay to make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do know that, that that is the only way we will actually win is if we, if we make mistakes and don't hide them, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that in, in a lot of our movement spaces right now, folks feel um, it's, that it's not safe to fail. It's not safe to make mistakes. And therefore, if, the, if mistakes have been made, then they have to be sort of shuffled off or the person who made them has to be just like, mm-hmm. you know, push out of the I think community. that I think you, you hit it on it earlier when you, when you referenced this, this kind of scarcity that we experience, right? That's happening in the world. None of us are getting enough of what we need, right? Um, and so there's there's that kind of movement part, but there's the personal part of it too. You know, towards this end of this mission, you know, even though we had all this planned time to to push and get things wrong, personally, the closer we got, right, the more pressure there was. Um, you know, I speak for myself. It was very very hard to be living on that bleeding edge 
of, of, mm. of pushing so close to failure, right? Because at that point you are so invested in this thing and all of the sacrifice you've given, you're so invested with your team and that emotional bond that you have, you're invested in the, you've signed up for something bigger than yourself, right? This is where space and organizing are, are so lockstep, right? You are looking for something bigger in the world that you're contributing to. And so that pressure gets so, so big. Um, and those are like, we have, we have to find those um, outlets for ourselves too, for how we, mm. how we, how we allow ourselves to be ready to fail because that pressure um, doesn't do us any good. Right. It just has, it helps. It, it makes us hold even tighter to the thing when, when, when holding it loosely um, is what allows us to, to, to have better relationship to it and better relationship to the people who can help, right? Help it, help it. So that's something I, I certainly noticed in myself or, or as well-planned as we did this whole system thing, you know, learning that lesson personally is, was still, a, was still a, a practice that I had to do. Mm. So like y'all are amazing. I don't even need to be here. We can just listen to CJ and Autumn riff back and forth because like I'm just sitting here like, wow, this is good. <laughs> I was in conversation as all. Well. But no, I, I I appreciate both of you for that exchange and helping us, you know, just vision the possibility that it is okay to make mistakes and fail. And and I just was wondering if you can talk to us a little bit more. Um, Adrian Brown said in the chat, like, I love the ideal fail forward sessions, you know, and, mm. and just thinking about how we kind of build this understanding into the way that we're doing our work, um, you know, that leads me to another, you know, question that Annie and I were thinking through just thinking about like, how do we I mean, you can't plan for everything that can happen. And I appreciate, I can't remember which one of you or maybe both of you said some version of we need to be flexible. Maybe that might've been you, CJ, um, you know, talking about, you know, just accepting uncertainty, but, you know, how do we start thinking about contingency planning when things do occur, how we, we handle and prepare to address um, whether it's just thinking about, you know, unplanned or unpredictable emergencies or just shifts in, in, in the process um, that might be necessary to make because of the way things are changing. Um, and then, mm. you know, how do we, how do we prioritize like what we should be preparing for and, and just thinking about, um, you know, some of the differences between like creative foresight and innovation, uh, wise planning, and then also just like, you know, self-limiting perfectionism. Um, that was a whole bunch. <laughs> I'm self-limiting perfectionism. Um, somebody gonna call a therapist to do this. <laughs> I just, I just, I just know that sometimes we can be so focused on getting, and we, the royal we. Um, not the royal family we, but like the rest of us. <laughs> you know, they're not focused on perfection. <laughs> not in the least. Now we no. all know. <laughs> we all know. But just thinking about like, just kind of how we begin to weave this in um, to, you know, 
to the best of our ability, like to block off that space within the work that we're doing and understanding that if we do have something come up, it's not necessarily like a fatal character flaw because I think so much of the way we're socialized into society and even unfortunately in the best of well-intentioned spaces, whether in, you know, great, you know, workplaces, organizing, whatever, there is still this, you know, notion for a lot of folks that if you mess up, if something happens, it is totally your fault. You are deficient somehow. You are to blame. So how do we help shift mm. people um, and think about like how we prioritize planning uh, uh, for, you know, dealing through or working through potential. And, and I don't, you know, uh, uh, emergencies, unplanned instances, things that don't go, you know, exactly as we intended them to, you know, how do we start thinking through that as a part of the work that we're actually doing? Um, like, I just think back to like, just even just basic high school, like chemistry, like doing experiments and stuff, right? Like, those are things that you're able to explain and work through. It's a part of the, it's part of the scientific process, but it doesn't seem to be a part of our process in other ways. And so what are some thoughts that you all have on how we can start integrating that, you know, uh, more concretely, more directly into the work that we're doing? And I'll let either of you uh, start. Um, I, I will just offer, I'd really want to hear, Autumn, what you have to say about this. So I'm just going to tell you what we do at JPL, which is a very okay. engineering way. Um, so it's like, you know, <laughs> it's not as, as, there's gray again and, and being comfortable with uncertainty. We talk a lot about risk. Risk is a thing we talk a lot about, right? It's, it's something that we manage. We, we have a whole grid matrix based on, is it a likely risk? Is it a, or, and how high is the consequence of that risk? We have whole spreadsheets that we rank them um, and we decide which ones deserve our attention. Um, and then we base our contingency plans around those risks, right? But at the end of the day, you will never get zero risk. It will never happen. So you've got to decide what's the risk posture you're willing to accept, what's comfortable for you, um, and where do you want to spend your time pre-planning these contingencies, right? And it is a real tension because when you live in contingency world, right, that that's where we lived the last like six months before landing because the nominal thing was done. It was, it was on its way. It was going to land itself. So all we had was time to think about what could go wrong. And when you live in that part of your brain for that long, it's intense. So you need to have some parameters for yourself <laughs> to walk yourself back from the ledge because in the end, you want to try to fix everything, right? But you can't. Um, and I think for us, we really looked at when you're talking about contingencies, if this thing, if this worst thing went wrong, are we going to be in the mindset then to be able to respond to it in a clear-headed and efficient way? Or are we actually gonna know better now, right? Because there are some things that are more likely to happen, but they were really straightforward answers. So we didn't need to spend a whole lot of time making a contingency plan because it wasn't that complicated. And so we did, but things that were like involved multiple teams, had certain constraints, those were the kind of things we spent our time on because we wanted to make sure that if this worst case thing happened, even if the likelihood was pretty low, if this worst case thing happened, we had gone through the fault tree that like 
well, what if this happened? What if this happened? What if these three things happened all at the same time? And we did, we, we, we followed every eventuality so that if it happened in the kind of clear light of day, we'd already made it. So, so those are the two biggest things for us because what's the risk posture that you are comfortable living with? And um, what are the things that you want to decide now in kind of an emotionless space? Um, versus what are you kind of, what is your team already ready to respond to if it happened? So that's, that's the kind of two categories that, that we, we organize ourselves by. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, I'm just, <laughs> I feel like I'm learning so much from engineers right now. Are you kidding me? I'm taking notes too. So don't worry. I'm, 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 like, I'm over here. Um, <laughs> love my hand. I mean, notes. if engineering was taught like this when I was an undergrad, when I was an engineering major, I might've stayed. <laughs> Tell but the truth. I'll, continue. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it's, I, I never saw the possibility at the time, but anyway, go yeah. ahead, Autumn. I mean, I just, I think that the, the, the thing that I'm, that I'm really picking up from what you just shared, CJ, is this idea of, um, of, you know, if, if the more unlikely like thing could happens that there is a risk of it happening, making, going ahead and making decisions about how you would handle it so that you're not having to make those decisions under pressure. I, I just love what you said about the, like, what is the headspace that we need to be in in order to be able to respond to to this scenario. And one of the reasons why it's speaking to me is that a lot of the work that I do right now with organizers is around resiliency. That's a huge part of what I do is supporting people one-to-one -one individually and also supporting groups and organizations to develop resiliency so that in the face of significant challenges, whether those challenges are expected or unexpected, folks can still find their agency and act and act in the best interests of their mission, in the best interests of their values, in the best interests of their bodies, right? Instead of defaulting to maladaptive patterns that actually make conditions worse for them in the face of those eventualities. So that's that's a big part of the work that I that I do. But but to this question um, about contingencies, I think the, the word that keeps coming to my mind is purpose. Um, that when we are orienting to a, a greater purpose, um, then it becomes less important what we can foresee. You know, I, I'm thinking about this, the interplay between the idea of foresight versus insight, right? And that like, um, you know, as you were saying, right, we can't foresee every eventuality. But I do believe that if we are orienting to a greater purpose, then we have access to insight about the conditions, which is different than being able to predict them. Um, and I think a lot, I mean, again, everything comes back to the great Octavia E. Butler. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, she did all of this work uh, so much of her writing was about um, belief and purpose and faith. She did a whole lot of writing. She did a lot of research and exploration around belief and faith 
and and the role <laughs> the role of belief systems, the role of faith itself as a as like an embodied experience on this on human psychology or as an expression of human psychology. And you know, in Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, there's there's a thing that she's doing in those books, right? Where she's making this kind of argument that people, human beings, have to believe and be oriented to something greater than themselves if they are going to survive. And her character, the main character, Lauren Olamina, is making that argument, but Octavia Butler is also making that argument. She's basically reading us, humans, she's like always reading us. She's so shady. And <laughs> so she's like reading humans being like, I see y'all, I see you, and you're not gonna be able to fucking figure it out unless you have something bigger than yourselves that you're orienting to that's giving you a sense of purpose, right? And so there's something clinical about that, but all obviously there's also a deeply spiritual element about that because the characters in her books who are oriented to that broader, I'm doing this sort of like, um, I don't know, I don't know what this is, spiritual hands motion, but the characters who are oriented in that way, um, when conditions change, their ability to adapt to those conditions is very different than the characters who are grasping onto, um, I need things to stay the way that they were. I need predictability, I need stability, right? So Lauren Olamina, trigger warning, or not, well, trigger warning and, and also spoiler warning, I guess. <laughs> but I meant to say spoiler warning, but it is both. Um, but Lauren Olamina in the, in the experience uh, from Parable of the Story to Parable of the Talents, she goes through this process of creating this community around this scripture and new belief system, new religion, earth seed that she's created. And they literally create a new intentional community that is then attacked and burnt to the ground. And the people, the children are all stolen. The um, Many, many people in the community are sexually assaulted repeatedly. Um, people are enslaved. Some of them have to figure out a way to get free. And then in the aftermath of that, she has to figure out, well, what, what do I do with this belief that I have this deep, deep belief? This is my purpose. Like my purpose is to, is to bring humans outside of ourselves into something greater than ourselves. And so she literally adapts her whole strategy. She just comes up with a completely different strategy for how she's bringing Earthseed to people because that failed, but she's not stopping. She just adapts. And I think, I mean, you see this again and again in Octavia's work that the protagonists, because they're orienting to a broader purpose, they, are, they have an insight that guides them even as the conditions change and they just keep adapting, adapting, adapting. Um, and, you know, I think all of all of the characters in her work, and certainly all of us right now at 2021, we're navigating conditions where we do where we keep being confronted with our lack of control. You know, <clears throat> you know, for all of our planning, for all of our brilliance, <laughs> we are just not in control. We are not in control of what's happening, um, and so there's some there's some surrender in that that I think I, I'm curious about, you know, I, I think, and I'm curious CJ, how you all <laughs> navigated, you know, I'm thinking particularly, I, and I don't know the mechanics of the, of, 
you know, um, all of this in terms of, you know, there's six months between the launch and the landing. Yeah. So at the point that the landing is happening, is that all happening on that's, is anyone actually controlling that process at that point? Is it all, you're just witnessing it. Yeah. And, and narrating what's happening and it's, it's all pre-planned, but you don't know that it's actually going to work. So you're literally just watching and narrating That's right. what's happening. Yeah. And I can't imagine what that, <laughs> I mean, what does that feel like to be, yeah. you know, you're, what does it feel like to have to surrender in that moment? Well, you know, I am so in love with everything you just so I have so many notes right now. Um, part of I I I think I love that you that you said about the belief and faith in this bigger purpose because I think what got our team through, you know, we have this bigger purpose that is outside of us that's about space and exploration, but I think we also really discovered that our, I think our resiliency was really rooted in the faith we had in each other. You know, our EDL, the entry descent landing team, we call each other EDL family. Um, And my boss is awesome. We have this incredible boss and we joke with him because we say he always gives us these anti-pep talks. He always like thinks he's, he's like pumping us up and then he's like, there's no Calvary coming to save you. And then he just sucks and we're like, <laughs> okay, like we're doing it. You know, he's really awesome. But then hours before landing off camera, we're all upstairs in a room and he, he sits us down and, and, and kind of preps us. And at this point, we've got like maybe an hour left. We could command the spacecraft, but we're really nearing the point where um, we no longer can do anything and, and all everything we've done over the last six, seven years led up to and he said something, he said, you know, I used to tell people when they said they worked for me, I used to correct them. I said, no, you work with me. And he said, but you know, I got that wrong because we actually all work for each other. This is how we did this. This is how we got here. Every day we showed up to work for each other. Through the technical arguments, through you know, design changes and failures. We had hardware failures through launch slips, through a pandemic, through marriages and babies and, you know, changes in our job titles. And what we did every day was showed up to each other and we found a deeper, bigger purpose there. And I think that's what helped our team really find our way through this last year. I think that's the root of our resiliency was that. And I find, and that is exactly what I loved in organizing. There's a reason why the people that I started organizing with in 2003, hello, I see some of them on this call, are my family, are my family, right? Because we were rooted in this, this, this purpose that was about each other too. Mm. And I think that's how we I will say personally, it is not my inclination to reach out when I'm at this at this peak of capacity and scarcity. I'm like, I'm going deep inside. I'm gonna bury myself down here. Everybody leave me alone. But the mm-hmm. truth is when I find my greatest strength and, and ability to, to, to expand is when I loosen and 
let that connection, those connections in, because, because that is where I think we, you know, that's just that energy, you know what I mean? I think we just need that, that energy of each other to really, to help us through those times, you know? And I think that's what helped my team to do what we did when we did it in the, in the time in the world that we had to do it. Wow. I love that. Just thinking about resiliency and I appreciate, I love these exchanges with the two of you. Y'all can take this show on the road when things open up. <laughs> but I was just also yeah. musical Sign interludes. Okay. See, look, this is like what the stuff, the stuff that I'm talking about. Annie, Annie I, warned you. I, I mean, is that it? just I was just thinking about, you know, young people I know in my life. I, I'm the mom of two at times amazing teenagers, but just the stuff that you all are talking about and how, you know, with resiliency and also, you know, thinking about other ways of envisioning future possibilities. I think, you know, there's so much buzz about Gen Z and Gen Z is going to do this and do that, but just really seeing them in real time, embodying so much of some of the things that you're talking about without even realizing that that is what they are bringing into space, but at the same time, being at odds in many ways with a world that is still telling, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds that you have to exist in a certain way or else. Um, it's just really interesting. So these types of conversations are so valuable, uh, even though they're not on Facebook because young people think Facebook is lame, but um, we will, we'll make sure that, that, that we get some eyes for the super younger set in different ways. But I just, I just wanted to young people for the win. Yes. I mean, I just, I just feel so full as a parent, just thinking through some of the stuff that you all are talking about and just how we can transition, um, trans, I don't want to say transcend necessarily, but, 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 but move beyond what we have been taught to believe is the way to do things, whether it's thinking about space exploration or organizing. I think for so many of us, we didn't even realize organizing was a thing that we could even do until it was something we were actually doing. And so I, I just wanted to just stop there and say, I really appreciate you all. Um, and then if folks have questions, we can start. If you have questions for either CJ or Autumn or both of them, you can start putting them in the chat and then um, somebody will make sure I see them. Uh, but just as we're continuing our conversation, because we are moving our way through this amazing exploration and exchange between these two awesome folks sharing their time with us, just thinking, I was just thinking about something that you said earlier, CJ, about um, the your, your, your supervisor saying to you all that, you know, you have a voice and it matters and just the importance and value of listening. And then Autumn, you were talking about narrative earlier on, you know, bringing these two things together, um, you know, can we, can we just talk a little bit more about the value of, you know, um, listening and not just listening to respond, but listening to actually like understand and shape how we move forward and how that helps develop, you know, the narratives around, you know, the work that we're doing and how we're engaging other people who may not be in our specific circles. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about this um, 
every answer I give, I feel like it's like, I, I'm so roundabout in terms of how I'm getting to the thing that I'm about to say, but just trust me, it's going to make sense. Um, it's good storytelling. <laughs> it's good narrative. <laughs> but I was, I was thinking, you know, so, you know, listening implies, right. Listening so that we can sort of like shape each other, I think implies that we're even in a place where we can actually hear each other in the first place. And I was thinking coming into this call about, um, just the reality of the technology that we live with right now and the impact that that technology is having on and how it's reshaping society and reshaping the conditions under which all of our relationships are being, are happening and being mediated. And, um, and, and so my roundabout answer to this is that I think we have to really consider um, whether the technology that we have, the technology that we use to organize is technology that facilitates listening. And I don't think, I think for the most part, what we're finding more and more is that it doesn't actually. Um, <clears throat> and I think to me, this is a big fucking question for the, for, for literally survival, <laughs> because, you know, when we think about, when we think about just in the world of science fiction, right, there are different ways of conceiving, um, of conceiving the, if this, then question related to technology and how it interfaces with human life. And so you see like really dystopic visions in a lot of science fiction where, you know, you're sort of like Blade Runner, where it's like technology has literally, it's like it covers every inch, <laughs> the, the tech covers every inch of the planet. So it's more like humans are living on top of it or underneath it, but they're not interfacing with it. It just, it's, it's ominous, right? It has this ominous relationship. Um, then you have the like utopic like Wakanda vision where it's like it's nature and technology is integrated with nature and like we have a city but there's lots of trees and <laughs> you know and our ships are invisible and like you know I mean it's just very you know like take me to Wakanda like I love their technology it just everything feels so balanced right there's a balance of the technology and the humans and the animals and you know it's, it all feels very nice. Um, we're not in either of those places yet, <laughs> but we are. We are in this place where you know the technology that most of us have access to is one that you know um, pushes us sort of ever inward, um, and and you know cuts us off from a lot of our it constrains a lot of our capacity for being in direct human relationship. Um, and then obviously the dystopic element of that technology, those digital networks, those digital platforms, social media platforms, and the way they operate is that like the business model through which they run is, you know, completely managed by ominous, <laughs> secretive third parties, right? So it's like, um, I just, I do think that we, that it, it's hard, it's hard to have a conversation about 
about listening with, for me, it's hard to have that conversation right now without acknowledging the conditions under which our social, like the way that the way that society and social relationship is currently being disrupted by the kind of technology that we have and the way that we use that technology. And so for me, you know, part of what was so enthralling about watching the video of the rover landing was just like, oh my God, technology is doing something amazing. (laughs) It's like, I'm crying because of technology. You know, um, it sounds so silly, but I just, I did. I mean, I felt it. I felt it on that, that grand psychic spiritual level of like, holy shit, we're on, like, we're going to another planet and oh my God, we can hear sounds from that other planet. And whoa, like that, that part is beautiful. But then there was also a part that was like, hey, like, it's not hopeless. Like our technology can still do beautiful things. I want more of that. I want more of that. I want more of, I want tech that we, I want, I want tech that's humane. (laughs) And that, that helps us be in relationship with each other more. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how, as the world starts to open up, what you know what's what are the things we keep from this time you know I've certainly zoomed with more people than I used to you know look at their faces when I talked to them which was lovely um I haven't had an adult birthday party until this year you know (laughs) that was real fun um (laughs) but you know so what do we keep I think one of the other things one of the things for me that seems to really stand in the way of listening besides of course just People wanting to say what's already on their mind, right? They're just going to be pause. Is this kind of badge of honor of busyness? You know, like I'm too busy. I've got so much going on in my brain and I can't stop being busy. And, you know, thinking back to early times in our mission when I felt so busy, right? I, I was, I'd see a lot of people do this. We'd go to a meeting and it'd be like this huge conference room with chairs lining the walls and You've got the people who are sitting at the table who really engage. And then you've got people who are lining the walls who are also on their laptops, not taking notes. They're on their laptops, but they're in the meeting. Like you don't need to be in the meeting, but we're all too busy. So we have to do this, but we're coming to the meeting too, right? Mm-hmm. And I look back now and I was like, I, I was not too busy to just sit and listen to that meeting. And what I would do after that meeting was go read the slides later because I wasn't listening entirely to the meeting. And so there's, but I think there's a real badge of honor around busyness, around I'm so tired, I'm so busy, right? This, there's this kind of, and I think it comes from, well, I think it comes from a lot of this. I'm not going to go there, but I do think that's part of what, um, I think that's part of what stands in our way of really hearing um, is, is mm. the ability to slow down and just be here, just be here in the moment um yeah so that's part of it for me um even mm-hmm. even prior to COVID um and of course adding the kind of world we're in now you're constantly on technology you're not you know you know in the first few months of COVID I'm a toddler in the background and this you know you are you really are yeah. mm-hmm. but, I, but I think this was this is a problem Very, very, I I appreciate the way that you both, you know, uh, add the additional context and the layers to really get us thinking through um, some of this stuff too. So appreciate 
the shares. Thank you. So we have some really cool questions coming in um, the chat. And, you know, one in particular that I got, which I'd also be curious about this. Um, I have some thoughts, but, you know, one, uh, CJ, I don't know if you'd be able to share with us some of the thought around, um, you know, the Octavia Butler naming the homage, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. But also just for both of you, what would Octavia Butler write to us from her perspective on Mars? Like uh, if we were to get dispatches from uh, the, the the late great phenom, uh, what 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 types of things do you do you think we might like get included? I mean, yeah. Well, um, I, I will just say I, I really want to hear from the Octavia Butler scholar on this one. So I'm going to talk so, to you. That's right. I'm like, I want to hear from Autumn too, um, but at the same time, I love having your perspective and analysis yeah. in the conversation, CJ. So I think I think we you. also all want to know how the name came about. So. Yes. Oh no. Actually, that was a, like a very no cool idea. surprise. Yeah, I I found out on social media just like the rest of you. So I was really so. <laughs> although it's not surprising, right? Like she's right. from Pasadena. Um, she went to Cal State LA. Um, you know, lived in the Pasadena area. I believe is is um her final resting places in that area, right? Yeah. So she's um so we you know we like hometown folks, and obviously she um was all about perseverance and exploration, uh, which is incredible. My wife said something really interesting to me, though, Caroline, was like, that's a really interesting choice because Octavia Butler, like, was pretty concerned with capitalism and ownership of things. And now we've just gone and, like, planted a flag and put her name on it on another planet. Um, So I'm curious what you think of that, Autumn, because I... (laughs) I was like, that's a great point. I hadn't even thought about that. I don't know if anybody in NASA thought about that. Um. You know they didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, ugh, these, these moments are so complicated. So I, I have a story to share. Um, I Many years ago, I went to a conference. This was probably, I don't know, a year, just a year or two years after Octavia Butler died. She died in 2005. Um, and um, there was a conference that was put on at the, at Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn mm-hmm. um, that was celebrating her work and honoring her work. And one of the panelists during one of the events was her um, agent. And she read the last letter that she got from Octavia Butler before she died during the panel, like she had it with her in her hand and she read it to, read, read parts of it to us. And in the letter, Octavia, Miss Butler is describing the, this new project she's working on. And this new book project she's working on, the way she's conceived it as that she's writing the story of five different missions where humans are colonizing other worlds but each book is from the perspective of the planet itself that is being colonized um, by the humans. And, <clears throat> and there's this beautiful line in the letter where she says something like, can't you tell I'm excited? This is what I sound like when I'm falling in love. Cause she's like so in love with her, with her own idea. 
and it's cool because you know all of her all of her papers everything you know it's at the Huntington Library in California so I'm sure that all I'm sure that all these notes for this future work that she was going to be creating are there somewhere but what I think is interesting about it is to note that you know she she in her work she really was interested in issues of colonization and she took them head on in a variety of ways you know one of her books um, Survivor that she published that then she let go out of print and didn't republish is essentially about this um, human mission where um, they're colonizing another planet. One of the women, it's, it's a group of white people who are literally like Christian missionaries colonizing this planet. And they have with the, the, the spiritual leader of the community, they have with them their adopted black daughter. And when they land on the planet, she somehow gets separated from the group. I can't even remember. But then she ends up blending with like the alien life on the planet <laughs> and ends up fighting with them to like fight off the, the missionaries. Right. It's like a very it's, it's a very intense story. Um, but even in Lilith's group, you know, she's really dealing with the fact that this alien life comes to um, Earth and saves saves humanity but at a price, at a cost, right? And the cost is now humans have to blend with this alien life form. Mm -hmm. And then by the third book of that trilogy, you've got humans who are like fighting back and saying, we don't want to have to blend with you. You have to let some of us see if we can figure out how to still be humans on our own without you, right? So she's, I mean, what I love about Octavia Butler is that she's always kind of She's taking those challenging questions and then basically saying, I'm gonna lift it up and turn it around and just look at it from every possible angle. So it's not just like colonization is bad and therefore we shouldn't do it. It's like, let's look at this. What is the instinct that causes us to want to go um, explore? And then how do we even understand the difference between exploration versus colonization? Is there a difference? <laughs> Right. <laughs> like, I think to me, that feels like a meaningful question for us to explore, not just for space exploration, but also for how we currently occupy this planet, you know, because it, it's I don't I don't you know, our the process of colonization is not done here. Um, and I don't I don't I don't think that we should think of it as something that's happened in the past. Um, and certainly, like, to me, there's a question around, um, like, you could frame it as the ethics, like the, the ethics of the activity itself, mm -hmm. right? Like, how do we know that we're engaging ethically in the, pro the practice of exploration? Does it make a difference if we consider it to be a dead world or not? Right. Like that's I think that's one of the interesting things with the Mars mission is that our understanding, our assumption is that there is no sentient life on Mars and that there was in the past. And so we're there to explore. And so we've kind of we've made ourselves safe from some of those hard questions. Right. Of, <laughs> of, well, what, what does it mean to encounter another life form and how do we ensure that we're not. Um, we're not going to cause the demise of that life form. So we can kind of consider ourselves safe for the Mars mission because we're assuming that, you know, we're assuming that there's no sentient life for us to disrupt, but we don't actually know that, right? I mean, that's my assumption is that we don't actually know. Um, and so, you know, it's funny, like, again, to, to call back to Star Trek, 
one of the things that's funny about Star Trek is that they have in the in the in the world building of the show, they have an easy out for this ethical the question. The prime directive. Right? The prime directive, which is like, well, if we counter another civilization in their pre-warp, then we don't interact with them in any way, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> easy, so we easy. can we can know about them, but they can't know about us because they're pre-warp. And how are they gonna get warp? They're not gonna get it from us, you know. <laughs> That's like, that's their sort of easy narrative out for the question of like, how do we deal with this? But we don't have that, right? Like, mm -hmm. like we don't, we don't have an easy narrative out for the question of how do we do this ethically? And so I think, you know, just like everything else we've been talking about, it's like we, what we don't want to do is look for the, an easy binary answer. That's like, we either can or we can't. I think we have to let it be more complicated than that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And as soon as you, before you even said it, I was like, Star Trek and a prime directive. Like they don't even <laughs> pretend to engage. And then we see with some of the newer iterations, even with Deep Space Nine, we see these very interesting ways that that is resolved um, <laughs> that kind of challenges, you know, a Jean-Luc Picard, uh, 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 nope, can't interfere there type of attitude. Right. Right. Um, but but I appreciate this this the way you approach the conversation the the question just thinking through the possibilities of you know how we're thinking about colonization we did have a couple of questions in the chat about um colonization how do we have spatial exploration I think Annie also had a similar question um, when we were thinking through like how do we have a spatial exploration that as carrying with us some of you know our, our our kind of goals or mores around so uh, equity and justice and not necessarily grounded in you know racialized capitalism um exploitation and and or how do we you know folks are like how do we colonize how do we avoid colonizing space before we've even decolonized earth or all those parallel processes that we're working at and i think mm -hmm. you started alluding to some of it um so I'm just wondering if either of you had any additional thoughts just on this idea of colonization. I know when the panel that disappointed me last month, um, like when <laughs> I asked that question, seriously, it was me and two older white people and they both like got very upset with the use of mm -hmm. colonization and they started, yeah. you know, and this was a question that came from the discord, from the chat and, and yeah. folks were really interested in grappling with this because we're talking about envisioning new ways of doing things in the future. And they were like, yeah. look, we shouldn't even use that language because Autumn, they were saying like, we're talking about planets that don't even have life forms. So there isn't even a conversation to have anymore. But so I appreciate you, you know, going into that whether or not we know for certain that we can't assume and and, and it still needs to be consideration either way so I just wasn't sure if well, it's also the language when you look at people when they talk about building bioforms and think you know spheres and sending astronauts to Mars they use the word colonizer. that's the word Mm -hmm. right right, right. To Mars. I think one of the things that's different you know we think about the early days of the space race this was very nationalistic, right? It was, I'm mm -hmm. going to get to the moon and stick my flag on it. That's not how space works anymore. You can't get to another planet by yourself. We didn't get to Mars by ourselves, right? Like there were mm -hmm. many countries involved in this mission. Um, we had space instruments from all over the world um, working on this mission. On the, the follow-up mission, the Mars sample return, it's going to be a coordination between European Space Agency and the NASA Space Agency. So we are, we are never going to do these grand space explorations 
as a country on our own. It's impossible. Uh, there's just no way for us to afford it um, or be able to actually execute that sort of thing. And that's one of the things that I love, and perhaps I'm just being a bit idealist, but that's one of the things that I love about space now is that it is a, it has to be an international endeavor because otherwise it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, we'd never get off the ground. We'd never do it. And so I would hope that by starting from there, that puts us in a better place to, to make the kind of decisions we have to make when we decide to send people to, to habitate other planets. Um, I can't say that that same tension will hold in the private sector, right? We, we are gonna see this play out in the next few decades where NASA and space agencies, you know, public institutions are going to attempt this exploration. But you've also got folks like Elon Musk who is, you know, it's his goal to get there. So I think we're gonna see this play out in the real world um, just, by, just by that very simple metric of who's going for themselves versus who's, who's going for themselves. Ugh, Elon Musk. I just, hope gets, I, hope, I, I just hope that he gets eaten by the first AI that awakens. I'm just like, I hope that the AI is like, mm, ah, ah. anyway, <laughs> um, I have a thought about this that I just wanted to offer about like space and colonization. Uh, if it's okay for me to jump back in that. So I'm, I've got this card facing me. That's like the like quintessential Octavia Butler quote which is all that you touch, you change, all that you change changes you. And my sister, Adrian, who's here on the call has this like tattooed across her body. And it's like, it just informs like everything that we do. And the reason why this is speaking to me in this moment is like, this is like, what makes colonization colonization is a colonizer changes, but does not want to be changed in response. Mm. right it's like I'm gonna touch and change this thing but I will not let myself be changed right and to me the the truth of what Octavia is putting forth there is like all that you touch you change and it will change you in response and you actually have to if our survival hinges on being willing to be transformed right or as Mary Hooks would say to be transformed in the service of the work right that's what we would say right now in this moment and so to me, that feels like mm -hmm. if we're going to not colonize the thing that we have to be um, like willing to confront in ourselves is, are we willing to be different? Like, are we willing to be changed and transformed through whatever process is about to unfold? Whether that means, you know, changing the way we culturally are together as you're, you're pointing CJ to this shift that's hap happening by necessity in terms of how space exploration is it the the level of cooperation that's required in order for it to be successful but then also are we willing to be changed when we come in contact with whatever life actually is out there because we would have to be changed by it and our it's i think it would only be our resistance to that whatever that transformation is, it would be our resistance to that, that would prevent us, that would, that would put us in the position of making war instead of creating something different. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I'm like writing that up in my bathroom mirror and I'm gonna look at that every day because that's just, 
I'm just gonna have to sit with that for a while because I, I think you're right. Like that's just that resonates so deeply. Yes, if if you're if we are not willing to be changed by the process, then then all we're trying to do is assert ourselves. Uh, right. Yeah. Wow. Oof, oof, that one gave me chills. Amazing. Annie, I think has a closing out question. So I just want to say, I really do appreciate everyone for rocking with us. An hour and a half can sometimes be like a pretty weighty thing, but this has been a beautiful experience for me. So I hope it's been great for everyone else as well. Um, and then I am kicking it over to Annie because we have unfortunately come to the end of our time and I appreciate the folks with the Forge and Movement School as well for helping to make this space possible. But Annie has a, uh, we could do this, we could do this like indefinitely. <laughs> <laughs> forever Always and forever. <laughs> I will be. I am really also trying to be respectful of folks giving us space to talk about space, but I could go on at least another half an hour before uh, my adjusted adult bedtime, but I'm kicking it over to Annie for a question. I do want to thank you to folks for participating, for, for submitting questions. If we did not get to your specific question, please understand it's just because of time and I'm trying to just go with the flow of the conversation. Um, but it is Lizzie. Don't worry that you missed it and got the we time. It. <laughs> yep, you can still rewatch it. It's there. It's 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 available. So Annie, uh, mm -hmm. final question and close out taking yeah, us. Thank you. <laughs> onto our thoughts, and I hope we all continue to find ways to have this conversation after this. Like this has just been like so awesome. But anyway, any final totally. question? Totally. All right. So um, I just have a couple really quick announcements to to make um, and definitely want to thank Movement School and also the Forge, the Journal of Organizing and Strategy and Practice um, for, um, you know, being the conveners of the party. Uh, if you want to be an electoral organizer or a movement organizer and get some amazing training, the deadline for Movement School applications is tomorrow. So you should totally apply. Um, and um, uh, want to make sure that um, uh, folks can stay in touch with our amazing, brilliant panelists um, as well. Um, so um, if you all want to say where they can find you, uh, you should feel free to do that as well. Um, uh, and uh, the question that I would love to ask that is pulling from some of the brilliant questions that are happening also in the chat um, that I would love for you to just um, uh, go with is um, is this so you know Octavia Butler in in the parable of the sower and the talents her characters are facing as autumn you said detention camps family separation environmental uh, devastation right they actually are dealing with a demagogue who's a white supremacist whose slogan is make America great again it's just like prescience after prescience um, and profit. Yeah, a million percent. Um, and I think the question is, um, with so much urgent strife and struggle and injustice in the world, um, she is still saying it's humanity's destiny to take root in the stars, right? It's still, that is still a worth it thing. Um, the perseverance took off this summer um, 
right as our streets were full of people mm. showing up for George Floyd and against um, white supremacy in our institutions, right? Um, so with so much urgent strife and struggle and injustice that is pressing on our lives, what's based exploration for right now? Like why do practitioners of justice and liberation or those who want a more reflective democracy, why do we need to learn from it now and not cede that work to the Elon Musks of mm. the world? <laughs> Mm, such a good question. It's a tough one. Annie's a really great closer. I might have. haven't haven't had Annie as my supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> Annie's also a yeah. great closer. <laughs> I knew this Annie. question was coming too. I read the notes. Mm -hmm. It's still it's, it's a tough question. Um, it, it is and it isn't a tough question for me, honestly. If you don't mind, Autumn, I'll I'll jump Go out for front. it. Um, you know, I think I think we've actually talked about why today i think we've all we've covered this because it is about purpose it's about showing what we do when we bring people together to do hard things right and you know this is this beautiful triumphant thing that we can all look to but it's not i'm so happy that nasa and jpl have these incredible um design and media teams to bring our world out to everybody else, because um, one of the things I noticed when I started doing this work is people were really excited to hear what I do, and then they didn't want to talk to me because they <laughs> it seemed really, the whole idea of it seemed too inaccessible. Um, and I hate that because it is clearly so accessible. And I think that's what I love about um, bringing this mission to the world is showing that like, we're just people who got together and did this really hard thing. And so when we're looking at what we're facing in the world, these are really, really hard things. And it's gonna take all of us with that central purpose, drilling in, having faith in each other and getting to work. And I think we, we can use space exploration as that guide and also Spiritually speaking, I think there's really something for looking to something bigger than you, much, much bigger than you, and being able to put your faith there, to rest your worries, to, to just have something bigger than you hold what you cannot hold. And, and I, I personally look to space, space for that. Uh, that's, it's a deep part of my spirituality. Um, and I think that can inspire us and carry us forward in, in hard times and help us find motivation to tackle those, those other things. Mm. That's so beautiful, CJ. I just, I, I truly believe that space exploration is inevitable. I don't even think that it's like a question of like, uh, whether we should be doing it or not because of particular conditions that are happening and in this current moment, I think we have always looked to the stars and wondered. You know, I, I think that it's, it's as the desire to understand what is beyond us, like literally physically beyond us, 
is I think it, I think it truly comes as natural to us as like sex and breathing and death. You know what I mean? Like, I just think it's a part of, I really think that it's like a deep, it's actually a deep part of being human is to look up and be like, there is more. I want to understand that more, you know? Um, and so I think to me, the question is less about why do it um, or what's the point and the question is more about um, are we are we as free as we would need to be before we go? Mm-hmm. You know, like there's the there's that searing image in the Martian Chronicles of the of that entire black community boarding a spaceship and leaving in the middle of like the Jim Crow era because it's like a it's like a alternate history moment in the Martian Chronicles where it's like all the black folks being like, we tried it with y'all. We're leaving. We're leaving now because that's what we need in order to be free. And I love that. I love that vision of it too. Right. It's like, I think that there's lots of possibility for why we would leave. (laughs) There's lots of possibility, lots of reasons. But I think for me, that question is like, like how free do we need to be to go if we know that going necessitates that we will be transformed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. I remember watching Cosmic Slop, I think in like eighth or ninth grade. And there's like a scene where um, the aliens come to earth and they're like, hey, we'll give you all this great stuff. Give us all your black people that are darker than a paper bag. And it was like the wildest thing. Um, in terms of like a story plot device. But at the same time, I remember as kids, we were wondering like, are those really our people coming to save us? Um, right. <laughs> They're like, like, we're just going to take them. We're just going to take them. Like, like <laughs> it was just this weird thing. And so I, I have felt that way personally, like maybe my people, I'm not really from here and they're going to come back and save me someday. So I definitely think space exploration is as much ours as anyone else. Is. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> I mean, also to the point in Andy's questions, like we can't see ground to folks like Elon Musk because this will end up being like one of those really bad, overpriced, over-budgeted sci-fi movies where you have the the space hotels where you have the elites living somewhere else and the rest of us are just stuck here, mm-hmm. um, you know, just dealing with the remnants of the destruction that was inflicted on the planet, right? So I do think that there is a lane there forward um, and we just have to figure out how we prioritize and spend our time and engagement. And I am going to wrap up our conversation there. I appreciate everyone so much, Autumn and CJ. Y'all are amazing, phenomenal people. If people would like to follow more or learn more about your work, how can they, what is the best way for them to do that? Mm. Oh, great question. Um, So um, you could listen to my podcast that I co-host with my sister, um, Adrienne Marie Brown. Uh, The show is called How to Survive the End of the World, and you can find it literally anywhere that you go look for podcasts. Um, And then for those people who are watching this and are serious, like Octavia Butler fans, Adrienne co-edited a volume called Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements. I have a, there it is, Annie's Mm -hmm. holding it up. And I have a story that's featured in the volume as well. Both of us do. Um, And from, that's just a jumping off point. There's so many places to go, but I would say start with the podcast. 
CJ, awesome, what about you? How can you. like, how can we like, do you have a science blog? Can I like, how do I learn about your work? I don't, I'm not, I'm not like, <laughs> my wife makes fun of me because I like to decline most friend requests on social media. So that's not, I'm not, I'm, that's my private spaces. So like uh, boring ways, like LinkedIn are, are a great way for like to filter <laughs> in. Um, but yeah, that's probably the easiest. I appreciate that so much. I really appreciate people who use social media for actual friendship. (laughs) Yeah. I try and then I end up deleting like everybody I like. (laughs) It just doesn't work for me. (laughs) Amazing, amazing, amazing. And you can catch me usually on the Twitters or Instagram at The Way With Anoa uh, for other witty commentary and political analysis. So I appreciate y'all so much. Shout out to Annie Weinberg again for co-creating, co-visioning and actually coming through because Annie's amazing closer and bringing us all together in conversation. This is brilliant. Um, And again, to the Forge and to Movement School, Uh, for helping to provide the space and facilitate this and other amazing conversations. So we are going to close it out. You know, like good organizers, we done lingered and had a good conversation Mm -hmm. a little (laughs) bit past time, but you know, it was worth your time, right? Because I know it was worth mine. So um, we are signing off and definitely check out the the sky, you know, let's go look at the sky. I'm going to see if I can get my kids to listen to Autumn and Adrian's podcast with me Mm because we we tend to talk about apocalypse and other things like I know what my plan is. If my if the apocalypse happens, I'm following them because they are super prepared and ready to rock and roll. So uh, Gen Z does have it on lock. Gen Z has it on lock. I mean, <laughs> no lie. See, yeah. millennials and Gen Z do get along. I don't know what anyone's talking yeah. about, but um, I will. I will. I'm, I'm just in awe, and there's so much we didn't get to, but definitely appreciate y'all so much. And I hope everyone has a good evening and a great rest of the week. Peace. Thank you, CJ. Thank you so much. Autumn, so great. So good to meet you. Thank you. This is so great. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. And another incredible thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple podcasts. If you're an iPhone person, how to survive the end of the world is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alani Ron and mother cyborg. 